You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. This is a very special and powerful episode, and we're diving in deeper this month really focusing on brain health. And I'm super excited about this one. You know, we have the most complex dynamic organ in the known universe inside of our heads. And it's super powerful to understand this. We have upwards of 100 billion neurons and 100 billion support cells in our incredible brains. And we have more connections in our brains than there are stars in the known universe. And so when I'm talking about this being the most complex organ in the known universe, I really do mean that. And even though this incredible brain takes up about 2% maybe of our body weight, unless you got a big old brain, it actually uses upwards of 20, 25%, maybe 30% of the nutrition that we take in. We've got a hungry, hungry brain, and this organ is starving for attention. I know that in my education process and going through school and learning about anatomy and things like that, we hardly spend any time really understanding how our brain is regulating everything else. I think that the brain should get the lion's share of attention because of all of its downstream impact. And for me, like I would hear about these different parts of the brain through media rather than in school. Like I was watching The Water Boy one day and you know, this was, I was pretty young and the teacher in one scene was making fun of the water boy and saying, you know, there's something wrong with your medulla oblongata. And he replies like, Sabado is nothing wrong with my medulla oblongata. And he tackles the teacher. Right. And it's this crazy scene, but I'm just like, what is a medulla oblongata? Sounds fascinating. So somebody like myself, I'm going to look it up. And your medulla oblongata, funny enough, has a lot to do with helping to regulate your breathing, your digestion, and also helping to regulate your blood circulation and even things like sneezing, right? And so, but this is a large part of kind of this autonomic or involuntary part of our brains. And so our brains are doing all of these really interesting, miraculous things for us behind the scenes, and we never really even realize they're going on. Thank goodness for our brains, because without our brain working at its true capacity, so many functions are going to be uh, inhibited or even lost. And so that's why I really want to take some time this month and focus on brain health. And today we're focusing more specifically on the dynamic difference with the female brain. What we tend to also be inundated with is that our brains are the same. Men and women are largely the same. And not just talking about how we communicate in our culture, because in, culturally we will say that there are many differences between men and women and how we communicate and all this stuff. But truly, we have some very significant uh, differences with the way that our brains are structured, with the, brain, the way that our brains operate, and even uh, how hormones, neurohormones impact our brains. And we're going to talk about all of that today. And a lot of things are going to be made clear today. And this is a very, very, again, important episode. I'm really excited about it. Before we get to our special guests and our incredible topic of the day, I want to share a nutritive component of our brain health that I really, really think you need to know about. 
There was a recent study published in PLOS One. So this is the Public Library of Science. And it revealed that spirulina, this super green algae, spirulina has a potential to, number one, improve neurogenesis in the brain. This is the creation of new neurons. This is one of the most rare happenings in the universe, again, is being able to create new brain cells because largely the brain cells that we develop in childhood are what we get throughout the rest of our lives. We do know that we can create new brain cells in different parts of the brain, not the medulla oblongata, but in the hippocampus, you know, the memory center of the brain. For example, spirulina has a potential to improve neurogenesis in the brain. That's one thing they found. Number two, they found that spirulina has the ability to reduce neuroinflammation inflammation in the brain, which is absolutely catastrophic in its effects. And we know that inflammation in the brain is now linked to Alzheimer's, dementia, depression, anxiety, the list goes on and on. And it's a very real issue. We found a certain food that can actually help to reduce that inflammation and improve overall brain health in spirulina. And spirulina, full disclosure, it's not yummy. But it is yummy in the way that I take it and also my family, my friends, I give it to people as gifts all the time in the Organifi green juice formula. One of the hallmark ingredients is a healthy dose of spirulina in a way that actually tastes amazing. And it's coupled with other powerful green super allergies like chlorella, for example. We've also got ashwagandha in there, which is great for stress management. The list goes on and on. Great formula, but it tastes amazing. You gotta have a green blend in your protocol today. We're just, we're not living at the same time, the same environment that our ancestors did. We need this kind of insurance to protect our brain and to nourish our brain. So huge fan of Organifi's green juice formula. Make sure you get yourself some. All right, pop over to Organifi.com forward slash model. You get 20% off their green juice formula and their other incredible blends as well. The red juice, they've got a gold blend that's fantastic. But specifically, when we're talking about nourishing your brain, protecting your brain, you gotta have the green juice formula. All right, so it's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. You get 20% off everything they carry. Use it. Absolutely use it because it's going to save you some money. But most importantly, this is an investment in your brain health and your mental performance. So pop over there, check them out. Organifi.com forward slash model. And on that note, let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled New Adventures by Coben Girl. I feel each time I listen to a new podcast, I'm experiencing wonderful adventures. I learn a lot and I'm truly inspired. Keep it going, please. I love it. That is so awesome. That's exactly how I want you to feel is like you're going on an adventure of discovery, of learning, of fun. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that review over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it so very much. And listen, if you've yet to do so, pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the show. Let everybody know what you think about the show. And no matter what platform you're listening on or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to engage, leave a comment, ask a question. Maybe we get the guest to pop in and answer some questions for you. But please make sure to let me know what you thought about the episode. I appreciate it so much. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is returning for a second time on the Model Health Show. And her first appearance is one of my all-time favorites. And today's guest is Dr. Lisa Moscone. And she's the director of Women's Brain Initiative and associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell 
Medical College, where she serves as an associate professor of neuroscience in neurology and radiology. In addition, she is an adjunct faculty member at the NYU Department of Psychiatry and the author of Brain Food and her new book, which is now available, The XX Brain, The Female Brain. And in this episode, we're covering some important and powerful insights about the inner workings of the female brain. I think you're really gonna love this. So let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Dr. Lisa Moscone. We recharged by ourselves, you know. You're, Whereas my wife, introvert? definitely. Interesting. I'm situational extrovert, you know, yes. like if I need to, you know. You have to. But I would much rather be by myself. Right. And uh, my wife is the opposite. Uh -huh. She likes, like she'll charge up being around people. Nice. You know, but we've rubbed off on each other. And quite that's a my bit. husband too. He's like the social butterfly and mm. he's hundred percent extrovert. Mm. So that's interesting. It is. You know what's yeah. so funny is that people they see people in in these types of lines of work where you're in the public eye yeah. or you're doing and they're just assuming like oh, you must be very outgoing. Not really. I'm <laughs> ingoing, you know, yeah. a little bit. But I mean I definitely I have my times, but I just like right. if I'm by myself with a good book. Yes. Or, you know, even if I'm just by myself meditating or whatever yeah. it is, I really like it. It gives me the, it fills up my tank. Yes. You know? Same. Yeah. I, now we got to a point where I tell my husband to just take my daughter to karate. She's, she's four. And she goes to karate. It's the funniest thing. She broke the tablet. You know how they have the wooden uh -huh. tablet and yeah. she has to punch it and break it? She did. Oh my God. So now she's a yellow belt, which is the funniest. She's like, She's a teddy bear, and you just, you're just, bah! Oh. So I just say, you take her, so I can get like two hours that yeah. nobody needs anything from me. Yes. And oh. it's fantastic. That teamwork is super important. It's so good. You know? Um, and I love that you said tablet, break a tablet. What's it called? A board. A board. But that's, it's cuter how you said it, you know? But it's just like, I was picturing like Moses with a tablet, and you know, but <laughs> it's all good. All good. So, Again, I told you. A piece of wood. She broke it. <laughs> Four years old. Little teddy bear just, you know. My little teddy. Break your jaw. With all these pink things that she likes. Oh, my gosh. I love it. I love it. So your book is just amazing. Thank um, you. As I mentioned, I didn't know I'd tear through it so quickly. But, right. you know, the information is so important and so poignant and so... Um, Did you know about how women have been excluded from research. No. So many people don't. That's yeah. the thing. I, mean, I would say most people don't, don't know that. So many scientists don't know either. I never thought of all the thousands of studies I've read, yeah. I've never thought about that distinction. And right. you mentioned it very clearly that the medical system has kind of uniformly excluded women. Right. And basically treating women as just smaller men when we're talking yes. about the medical data. Can you right. talk about that a little bit? Yes, so the first part of the book is really uh, a description of how women have been systematically excluded from medical research, which is not to say there's a conspiracy yeah. against women, but it's just something that happened as a result of a number of biases, if you will. And so I use this term bikini medicine, which is an unfortunate term, if you, if you will, but it's quite to the point um, describing how historically most medical professionals really actually believed that men and women were essentially the same person, just with different reproductive organs. So setting those parts of the body aside, as if one could, meant that most professionals, most doctors, would diagnose and treat both sexes the same exact way. And basically, 
there's a whole worldview that got derived from that model, which makes women's health, the field, biased to start with. Because if you go to a doctor and say, can you look at this female patient through the lenses of women's health, they're going to do a pap test mm -hmm. to check your cervix for cancer. Standard. They're going to do a mammogram if you're over 42 or 40, depending on the doctor. They might do a blood test to check your sex hormones for fertility or menopause and whatnot. But again, women's health is confined to the health of a reproductive organs. And that's really a direct consequence of a very reductive understanding of what a woman is to start with. Yeah. Because clearly women are not the same as smaller men yeah. with different reproductive organs. They were somewhat different systems. And it's not in any way to exaggerate the differences. So it's not like women have some parts that men don't have, well, except for yeah. the reproductive <laughs> organs, right? But when we're thinking about, for example, women's brains, which is really the focus of my research, anatomically, we're basically the same, but the functionality of the brain is different. And there are so many things that can happen in the brain that happen more to women than to men, or only to women and not to men, and only to men and not to women, yeah. right? But we understand men's risk factors a lot better then we understand what can happen to women. Yeah. So that's really why I'm doing this. Yeah, and it's so important because as you outlined, um, the first thing I want to make clear, which you alluded to already, is that it's not like some conspiracy, no. but there was some early reasons why this kind of evolved into this, which is women's bodies tend to create some curveballs when doing clinical trials, like right. pregnancy. Right, getting pregnant was a big one. So what happened... Um, was that there was a drug, thalidomide, that was given to women, including pregnant women, to deal with symptoms like nausea. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that the drug actually had a terrible impact on the baby. And many babies were born with deformities, with severe medical issues. And so the drug was reevaluated and was banned in the United States. But at the same time, the FDA really took a cautionary stance mm -hmm and decided to exclude women of childbearing age from experimental clinical trials, where you still don't quite know side effects as well as you should, right? Yeah. But then that's so excluding women, a lot of people. But that's excluding a lot of women because it's any woman from puberty through menopause, right? So what happened then is that just, I, I think it was really out of concerns for the babies and the women to some extent, the, the new mothers, that women were just excluded from all clinical trials, not the phase one clinical trials, but just from all medical research. And by doing that, women were no longer participating in research, but they were also no longer informing research. And it is true that our bodies are more cyclical in nature than a man's body. And if you're a scientist, you have to deal with that. Yeah. But that's not that hard to do, yeah. right, to be honest. And instead, a decision was made to just focus more on men, assuming that especially when it came to heart, lungs, and brain, that would also, whatever results investigators found, would also apply to women. Mm. And that turned out to be not the case yeah. in, in a big way. And even when women are included, 
and again, just thanks to your data and me learning this, yes. it tends to be everybody's lumped together. All yes. the data's lumped together. It's not giving a distinction between this is something for women's health specifically, yes. this is something for men's health. And with that said, we parlay into this discussion of the female brain right. and how different it is under these different measures, whether it's like some kind of a nutritive intervention or medical yes. intervention, it's gonna impact women's brains differently. So I wanna talk about the difference yes. with <laughs> the female brain because it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, let's just talk about, number one, the, the physical brain itself is different. In a little bit. So I, the anatomy is not quite different. Like if you look at brain scans, and you don't know the gender of the person that you're taking a picture of, there's no way of telling this brain belongs to a woman, this other brain belongs to a man. Other than, on average, women's brains are slightly smaller because we're just smaller on average than men, but once you adjust for head size, pretty much volumetrically speaking, there are no strong gender differences. The differences that matter most are in the functionality of the brain and the biochemistry of the brain. And I've been looking into that for a really long time because of personal reasons. I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease that affects the women in my family quite a lot. So my grandma, my grandmother, was one of four siblings and there were three sisters and one brother. And all three sisters got dementia and died of dementia, whereas the brother was spared. And that was quite shocking, also because I'm from Italy, as you know, I'm from Florence in Italy. And especially back then, there was no assisted living. So your grandparents live with you, mm. period. And then the family, you know, especially my mom, became the primary caregiver for my grandmother. And then my aunts started taking care of the other sisters who got dementia. Everybody, I mean, it was like a 10 years process. Mm. And it was very painful as, as anyone can imagine. And that really led me to think about Alzheimer's disease as a connection with sex and gender, which was really not a topic of conversation back then. At I've all. been doing this for almost 20 years. Just really, you know, and I've seen the field just change so much. And something that many people are not aware of is that women's brains have very specific risks that we usually underestimate and kind of put down to, you know, perhaps you're having a bad day or maybe you're PMS. But in reality, women are twice as likely as men to have anxiety and depression. We're three times more likely to have an autoimmune disorder, including those that attack the brain, like multiple sclerosis. We're four times more likely to have headaches and migraines, as any man knows. <laughs> We're more likely to even get meningiomas, which are the most common form of brain tumors, especially during menopause, and we're far more likely to die of a stroke. And on top of all that, Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia on the planet, affects more women than men. So of every three Alzheimer's patients, two are women, mm. which means that for every man suffering from Alzheimer's disease, there are two women. And that's an enormous amount of women. In the United States alone, Alzheimer's disease affects almost 6 million people. And if we don't find 
solutions, by the year 2050, is going to grow to like 15 million, which is like, for context, is the populations of New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles put together. Mm. So it's a huge amount of people, and two thirds of all those people might be women. So we have some problems here, yeah. and it's important to find solutions. So this is really what I was trying to do with the book, not just be super depressing. <laughs> it's not a yeah. downer, I promise. It's really it's about acknowledging the yeah. problem, explaining how we got ourselves in this situation, and what we can do to really reverse uh -huh. this problem and, and optimize cognitive health and brain health in women. Those are the scans I want to show you. There are some wonderful brain imaging scans in the book as well, just to kind of highlight some of these things. We look at premenopause, postmenopause, the brain really does change. It does change. But one of those physical aspects, just to pivot back a little bit, and it just of course made so much sense when you talked about it, that the one of the physical is still, it'd be difficult to see if you don't have the trained eye looking for it, but the, I guess the hemispheres of the brain for women, it's more, um, what's the what's the right word for it? Interconnected. Interconnected. Yes. Well, I think the the technical word is structural con connectivity. Yes. And so what happens? Just taking a step back, just a quick one, is that women are born with two X chromosomes, and men are born with an X and a Y, and those genetic differences do matter also in terms of brain development. And I think it's important to clarify that because most people think of this XX and XY as only involved in reproduction. But in reality, there are many genes on these chromosomes that are directly involved in brain function. And something that is a curious fact is that the X chromosome, which women have two of, are much bigger than the Y chromosome. So each one has 1,098 genes, whereas the Y chromosome has only 78. Yes, and many of these extra 1,000 chromosomes that women carry are really involved in brain function. So there's something there that starts immediately at the time of conception, because this cell that is born with the XX is going to develop and mature and migrate differently than the other cell that is born with an XY. And one of the big differences is the type and quality of the hormones that are going to be produced in those brains. So the XY chromosome dictates that that baby is going to start making androgens, like testosterone, which are male hormones. So the brain, because these chromosomes are also part of our brains, right, and they're involved in brain function, so the brain is also really going to be wired to respond more to the androgens than testosterone, because boys have very little estrogens. For girls, it's exactly the opposite, right? We make a fraction of the amount of androgens, and we make a thousand times more estrogens, this figurative speech. But our brains are really wired to respond to the estrogens. Mm, and the way that right. works is that we have little receptors in many parts of the brain that are specific to that type of hormones. So our brain tissue is populated by estrogen receptors that specifically bind to estrogens. It's like a key in the lock. And when the binding happens, then there's a lot of things that happen in the neurons downstream, especially energy production. So hormones, estrogens in particular, in the female brain are really strongly involved in energy levels in the brain. 
And so what happens as these baby brains age and go through puberty and then through a number of different phases of life is that at some point we reach midlife. And that's when things start going downhill for women, at least temporarily, because testosterone doesn't run out until late in life. Most men don't lose their hormones until they, they, they're in their 70s or 80s. Of course, there's a little bit of a change, but it's not nearly as dramatic as what happens to women in menopause and perimenopause, where we basically lose our hormones, like boom. They just literally peak down. And that has an effect on the brain, which we have demonstrated using brain scans perhaps for the first time, as far as I know. So that was quite shocking, is that image in the book that you mentioned. Yeah, this was like, because I think the issue is that we label these as sex hormones, yes. and it's kind of the end of the story, but understanding there's right. so many more receptors, there's a lot more activity going on the brain in the brain for women as far as estrogen and yes. all the influences that this has. And so that starts to open up the case for when you shift away from having this estrogen mm -hmm. production. Yeah. And then we see paralleled all of these issues with cognitive decline, uh, Alzheimer's that are so much higher in women. And we're not talking about this. We're right. not having this conversation. Right. So estrogen is just, it's so much more than it's just a so sex hormone. It's so much more. Thank you. Yes. So hormones like estrogen are not only involved in reproduction, but also very closely in brain function. And estradiol in particular, which is the most potent form of estrogen, is really key for energy production in the brain, as well as growth, plasticity, and immunity. So what happens is that when your estradiol is high, as a woman, your brain energy is really high. But when your estrogens go down during menopause and perimenopause prior to that, then your brain energy also goes down. Your neurons slow down mm. and they start aging faster. And studies have shown that this process could even, in some women, not all women of course, but in some women, that is correlated with the formation of Alzheimer's plaques or amyloid plaques. And we have shown that using brain scans, that that's really true. If a woman is predisposed to Alzheimer's disease, that shows up during menopause, which is 50. It's not age 70 or 80, it's 50 years old or earlier. I was just reading that 10% of menopausal women go through menopause before age 45. It's incredible, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so. With that said, um, <laughs> some of the, so you mentioned that es, estradiol. Estradiol. Mm -hmm. So there are different forms of estrogen, which yes. I think is important to mention. It's not just one thing, it's yes. estrone. And, yes, and uh, estriol. Estriol. Yes. And so when we're looking at, which we'll get to, hormone replacement or whatever the yes. case, we have to be mindful, like what kind of estrogen. We're replacing the estradiol. And so, that is the one that your body no longer makes after menopause and the estrone yeah. is the backup. Whereas the other, the third hormone, you only make it when you're pregnant. Mm. And it makes you feel great, mm. but only for a few months. <laughs> and then that's it, you're on your own. So <laughs> we got people, you know, estrogens coming off the bench when they need to, you know, mm -hmm. but it, it's such a bigger conversation. Yeah. And so let's talk about some of the impacts that estrogen has on the brain. So you mentioned yes. like preventative, like when it's around, there's less of an incidence of 
you know, potentially the amyloid plaque formation. Yes. yes. But what are some it of the things to... that estrogen does for the brain? Like what benefits does that do for a woman's brain? Well, many, many benefits. We refer to estrogen and specifically estradiol as a master regulator in the female brain because it's really involved in a number of functions that uh, you wouldn't even imagine because we never talk about it. But really, um, energy is, is the most important thing. And I, I, I know you love biology, so I'm going to go into it. Let's do it, yeah. uh, By energy, I mean um, cerebral metabolic rates of glucose. So estrogen is something that activates neurons to burn glucose more efficiently. And glucose is the main energy substrate for neurons, especially, right? So over 90% of synapses are glutamatergic and they really need glucose to, to fire. And um, the estrogen literally helps glucose enter the Krebs cycle and be shuttled into the mitochondria, which are the energy factory of the body and the brain. So that's really important because that's the way that your brain produces the most ATP. And I know there's a lot being said about ketone bodies, but with the research, if anyone is thinking, well, then I should go on a keto diet, right? What the research has shown is that as you go through menopause, what you really want to do is to treat the root cause of this. So you want to have the hormones that allow your brain to burn the glucose, because if you do not, what happens is that uh, ketones are just not enough. And research, research has shown that, and at some point your brain just gets really confused and starts burning its own fat. And that, the structural uh, fat. Yes, that's the structure of so the brain. And that's why we find white matter reductions on brain scans. It's called catabolism. It's when, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. Let's just, yeah. say, let's just say that. So that's one reason that having enough of this hormone is really important to keep the brain structurally uh, solid and sound, but also to really support the functionality of neurons and just the health and the integrity of your membranes. Yeah, this is so, this, like again, super enlightening and... I'm so glad I get to talk about yeah. these things. I'm usually more like, yeah, you know, neurons burn sugar. <laughs> <laughs> well, we love to geek out. Right. And uh, I love the fact that in the book, you said this, and this is a direct quote. You said, Alzheimer's isn't like you suddenly caught a cold. Rather, right. the disease is the result of a number of genetic, medical, and lifestyle events that have been happening along the way right because what we tend to think is that it's just happened yes the one day you go to the doctor and boom you have a diagnosis and, and if we're talking about the story of estrogen it's a longer history you yes. know than, than than oh my estrogen is turned off or whatever the case might be right. this is something that with our lifestyle and with mm -hmm. our focus on our brain health is going to determine what estrogen is doing pre-menopause during right. and after after yeah. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, for sure. And it's important to talk about this because that's quite an insight to associate menopause with Alzheimer's disease, right? Most people think of Alzheimer's as old age and menopause as middle age. But in reality, we know now that Alzheimer's disease starts with negative changes in the brain years, if not decades, before clinical symptoms emerge, which is like in the 70s. So 
the real onset of Alzheimer's is more in midlife, especially for women, and it seems to really overlap with the transition to menopause. And I, I want to add this, and then I'm going to stop the bad news, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, for most women, menopause is around age 52 in the United States, 52, 53, but it can be much earlier, sometimes because of genetics, sometimes lifestyle, but very often because of medical interventions. And I would like to mention this because common examples are a hysterectomy and or an ophorectomy, which is the surgical removal of the uterus and or the ovaries. One in every nine American women has this procedure done in the course of their lifetime, very often before menopause, when they're young, in their 40s. And we unfortunately know that having the uterus and more so the ovaries removed prior to menopause correlates with a higher risk of future dementia in women. So this is something that I, I realize is depressing news and it's very upsetting news, but we also really, we need to talk about it because so many women are not aware. Yeah. And it is important information to have because sometimes you get your uterus taken out because of fibroids. Yeah. You know, it's the most common cause yeah. of surgery. But we know from other work that very often fibroids respond to medical and lifestyle treatments. Yeah. So there's, it's something that is worth looking into before your doctor even suggests the surgery. So I just want to put it out there. Yeah, it's one more reason to really yeah. consider reproductive organs not as something that you can just get rid of quickly. Right, right. Because right. this really goes back to this being a male-focused field, yes. you know, and just like, yeah, well, you're not going to need those anymore, you know. And I've seen this many times. It's actually one of the catalysts for me getting into the space and moving outside of fitness and focusing more on nutrition and health mm -hmm. is because of a patient I work with who uh, had fibroid tumors. And, and we were able to, and we did it, by the way, we did a, it was a while back, we did an episode on fibroids. So we'll put that in the show notes. Hmm. But she had fibroids the size of like oranges and yeah, yeah. they were able to dissolve the size of raisins within, you know, within a month's time. But this is, results not typical. Let me just be clear. No, but, but it can happen. Yeah. And if, even if they don't dissolve in a month, you can still make it better. You can manage the symptoms often, not right. always, right. not always. We but if you be, can, I think it's really worth looking into that and this is even more of a good reason yeah. to just need to be more judicious in owning like these are your organs and let's like look let's yeah let's take some time and kind of go through and look at all of our options before we have something taken out is like the biggest right. you know take home and again um i think it's important to get self-educated which yes. is a book like this this is mandatory reading for <laughs> any woman and also if you love women you know you should check it out too yes. but the female brain, the XX brain, this is like a guide it, to it understanding to be, your body. Yes, it was meant to be a woman's guide to maximizing brain health and preventing Alzheimer's disease. That was my idea for the subtitle and then got kind of overruled. But I really wanted to write it as something that is very practical. So yes, there's, it's divided into three different parts. The first part is really the research which I think is very motivating to really understand how your brain works and what hasn't been done and what needs to be done. But what we know so far is quite powerful already. Yeah. It's just that it's not common knowledge. 
it's just now common knowledge that if you go to an OBGYN or a surgeon who's going to take out your ovaries, there's a good chance that they might not know that that's going to have an effect on your brain. So I think there's yeah, a whole education thing that is kind of missing in medicine. I think yeah. we, we should be doing a much better job of really communicating with each other and Absolutely. sharing data and then providing information to the patients, a really comprehensive information, which is not to say the, the doctors don't want to do that. Yeah, of course. Right? It's just something that needs to happen and we're moving in that direction. But I think it's also important for women to know that and demand information and really understand their brains better. And then take part two, which is a lot of tests and it really helps you uh, figure out if there's anything that you should be concerned about, what kind of risk factors are really important for you and not the average statistical woman or person, <laughs> right? And then in part three, which is the longest part of the book, is really everything we know from science, no internet, no, you know, no personal opinions. It's really science-based evidence and actionable research that every woman can, can really engage in today, including a lot of information on hormones. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. you talk about that we have a chronological age, we have a hormonal age. Yes. And so yes. this is really a big key as we move into this new model yes, right. of women's health and just health overall for anybody is mm -hmm. understanding we have a hormonal age. Yes. I think it's more of a thing for women for the reasons we just discussed that all of a sudden you're aging really fast, right? As you hit menopause, your clock, your biological clock and your hormonal clocks are kind of not in sync anymore. And so I think especially midlife as women approach perimenopause, which is any woman of age 45 and older, sometimes younger, you know, but it's pretty much every woman, um, something is happening to your brain that really deserves your attention, your full attention and your support. <laughs> and I think that's the nice thing that, that we can do for ourselves to really feel connected to our brains and acknowledge the fact that your brain is not just going to get better on its own. And there are a lot of things that you can do to protect it, to support it, to nourish it, especially in midlife when women's brains seem to be more sensitive to hormonal aging than just straight up chronological aging, which is not putting women down. It's not a condescending thing to say. It's exactly the, the opposite. We just, we have these hormones. You know, it's not sexist to say that they matter for your brain, which is not to endorse any stereotypes right? And women have the chocolate love and the shopping thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really about understanding that these hormones matter and that we need to just protect them the same way that we, we think about health for many other things. Yeah. And I love the fact that you talk about why, just that question, like, why, why do women have to go through this at all? Right. You know, and just kind of like, it seems like <laughs> a philosophical question, but you mentioned yeah. that there's only two species that are able to continue living after their fertility is over. Yeah. And it was what, what whales and women, women. and killer whales. And killer whales, not just regular. Not just regular whales, <laughs> killer whales. There's another type of whale as well that I just learned about, but I, I think they're rare. But killer whales are quite interesting. So fascinating. Yes. And you have a, and this is the thing, is like we try to, to piece together, like why? Why yes. would that be? Mm -hmm. And you had a great example of how even killer whales, how their uh, social dynamic is. Yes. So let's talk about they that. They live in matriarchal societies. So the kids stay with the mom for a long time, which is kind of parallel to 
ancient humans, mm. where the men used to go hunting and were gone for a long time, understandably. And women would stay back and take care of the kids and the elderly. And the men might not come back, too. And may not come back, too. That's true. So there's this theory, which I think is really cute. It's called the grandmother hypothesis that says that at some point, Mother Nature thought, well, I don't want these women to die when they're no longer fertile. I want them to stay with, with their daughters and become grandmothers and really help. But in order to avoid a reproductive conflict, I'm just going to make them infertile. So they can stay on, they can help out, mm -hmm. but they're not going to have kids anymore because we need the younger generations to have kids because that's much more powerful. The kids are going to be stronger and healthier and yeah. whatnot. So that's, that's what people think. And I think Mother Nature could have made it a little bit better, right? The transition <laughs> could have been smoother. <laughs> But, yeah. Oh, man, I love it. So is that the, what is it called? The grandmother? The grandmother hypothesis. The gram hypothesis. Got <laughs> it. All right. So now that we, you know, we've established that this isn't a, a sexist issue. This is a no, fact. It's a fact, and yes. Men menopause is something that is just a normal process. Yes. And... It's but a taboo still taboo, in our society. Right? We should really break pretty fast. Yeah, it's and it's, it's ridiculous. So if we can, let's... Let's first just give a brief summation of we know what well, we, we tend to tends to happen and what we see in the media or even movies mm -hmm. is like, you know, the hot flashes. Right. We see the unstable emotions. Like yes. what's Crying going spells. on when when menopause, when the process actually takes place, why are why why do women experience these symptoms? Right. And that's really a good point, and I, I was so surprised to learn that that is not common knowledge at all. So I think it's really good that we get a chance to talk about it. And it really goes back to what we were saying before, that the, the female brain is wired to respond to estrogen. And all these little estrogen receptors are located in very specific brain regions. They're particularly abundant. For example, in the hypothalamus, which is the brain region in charge of regulating body temperature. Mm. So if estrogen doesn't activate mm. the hypothalamus correctly, then the, the brain is not able to regulate body temperature correctly. Those hot flashes that women get, that's the hypothalamus. It's just that the estrogen is, is going up and down, it's all over the place, and the hypothalamus gets confused and can't keep your body temperature constant. Or is the brainstem, which in it is in charge of sleep and wake. So if estrogen doesn't activate the brainstem correctly, we wake up at night or we have trouble sleeping. And then there's the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, which is right next to the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. So when estrogen levels ebb in these regions, some women get mood swings, some women get depression, some women have memory lapses. All those symptoms, when women say, we're having hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, depression, anxiety, brain fog is a mm -hmm. big one, memory lapses. Those, those symptoms don't start in the ovaries. They start in the brain, in those very specific regions of the brain that are adjusting to the fact that your estrogens are all over the place. Yeah. This is fascinating because, yeah. you know, with the hypothalamus, like there's so many questions that are being answered in my mind right now. <laughs> and it's kind of considered this master gland. And yes. it's like an interface, like your 
endocrine system, your nervous system. Right. But so it's of course, also the region that regulates the production of estrogen and progesterone, right? So it's not being activated correctly. So it basically yeah. becomes a loop that yeah. is not as efficient as it was. And being that it's regulating temperature makes complete sense, but also it's it's a assistive regulator in your body's use of calories. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we see the fluctuation with weight. Absolutely. Oh so God. many women put on weight after menopause. Oh. Mm -hmm. It really starts in why your brain. You, why are you like making everything make sense now, <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. Because as a woman, I really wanted to know. And I was surprised that I didn't know, that nobody would tell me. My mom didn't tell me a word about menopause. I asked her because for many women, knowing what happened to the mom is a good indication of what's going to happen to you, mm -hmm. right? So I was like, Mom, how did you make it? How was it for you? And she's like, oh, I know, some trouble sleeping, but broadly, okay. So I was like, okay. And so I, I, there's hope for me as well. But the important thing is then... Yes, there's a genetic component, but then your lifestyle plays a huge role. For example, personal example, my mom never smoked, and she went through menopause at 53, which is on the later side. I smoked in high school being Italian, mm. not nearly as much as my friends used to, but <laughs> I probably smoked enough to actually create a problem for my ovaries because smoking is the number one cause of early menopause. Mm. Yes. So it's even more of a good reason not to smoke cigarettes, especially oh, for girls. Poor ovaries. No. Poor ovaries. Yeah, it's, it's a toxin. Yeah. It's a very specific ovarian toxin. So that, again, that, I think that highlights an important category of toxin exposure. Yes. Can affect this process. For sure. So yes. we're going to talk about some of the steps to yes. ensure that the brain is well nourished <laughs> and that, you know, we create the conditions for more graceful processes that undoubtedly as a woman you will go through and even if you've already surpassed that what can we do yeah. to feel better and we're going to do that right after this quick break so sit tight we'll be right back there's a huge wave taking place right now with folks stepping up to try to find how to get a mental edge there's never been more competition there's never been more people vying for attention and looking for creativity and performance and finding ways to really stand out and so priming and optimizing brain health is truly the wave of the future right now. And for that, folks are really tuning in to this category of nootropics. Now, nootropics are a category of supplements, drugs, other substances that can improve cognitive function, be it memory, executive function, motivation, things like that. But we want to keep in mind that your brain is really operating on a system that has literally millions of years of evolution behind it so throwing in a new smart drug that was created you know last week might not be a good idea so we want to lean into what are some of the things that have historical use that are also clinically proven to be effective for optimizing and improving the function of our brain we're talking about mental performance and so for that i want you to know about a study that was published in evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine that found that this little secret listen in Raw honey possesses nootropic effects, such as memory-enhancing attributes, as well as neuropharmacological activities, such as antidepressant activities and anxiolytic effects, so helping to reduce anxiety. I didn't know honey could do that, All right? But listen to this. Honey polyphenols are also directly involved in 
activities that help to reduce neuroinflammation. So we're talking about reducing inflammation in the brain. Now, this is another thing that has a parallel wave taking place with inflammation and disorders of inflammation taking place throughout our body, systemic inflammation, but also the brain specifically, which is connected to issues like dementia and Alzheimer's, but also just poor mental performance. And so honey has that capability as well. But the key is raw honey. The study says raw honey. Now with this, we need to be careful. We need to be mindful. And for me, this is why I look to beekeepers naturals to get my honey because they're dedicated to sustainable bee practices, beekeeping, and also they have third-party testing for over 70 pesticide residues that are found in common bee products like honey, bee pollen, and the list goes on and on. Now, some of those things that are in conventional honeys include arsenic, lead, mercury, E. coli. Not a good, not a good. So we want to behave and make sure that we get our honey. They have incredible superfood honey. They have a chill, be chill honey also that has hemp in the honey as well. But they have some incredible products that again, you're getting your medicine, you're getting your nootropic benefits without the harmful stuff on the backside. Now, if we're talking about nootropics, this one specifically you have to know about. There was a study published in Advanced Biomedical Research that found that royal jelly, royal jelly has the potential to improve spatial learning, attention, and memory. Royal jelly, that's what the queen bee eats. All right, it's exclusively the royal jelly. All right, so this is taking honey and this is supercharging it. This is taking honey and doing a fast and furious with it. All right, this is the Vin Diesel version. Now, Royal Jelly also has antimicrobial, anti-tumor, and anti-inflammatory properties as well. And Royal Jelly has been found to facilitate the differentiation of all types of brain cells. So helping your brain to create the cells that it needs. And to top it off, researchers in Japan recently discovered that Royal Jelly has the power to stimulate neurogenesis in the hippocampus. So this is the memory center of your brain, literally creating new brain cells. I'm telling you, there are not many nootropics out there that can do something like that. And the Bee Elixir product that Beekeepers Naturals has is phenomenal. It's called Bee.Lixir, L-X-R, incredible. The basis is royal jelly, but they also have one of my all-time favorite things in there, Bacopa. Now listen to this, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trial, gold standard of studies, published in 2016, found that after just six weeks of use, Bacopa significantly improved speed of visual information processing, learning rate, memory consolidation, and even decreased anxiety in study participants. Try the Bee Elixir, all right? If you wanna boost your cognitive performance, it's something for you to you know, kick off your day to get focused. If you are about to go into a meeting or a performance or study, or you just want to improve the function of your brain, reduce inflammation, get your brain healthier try the Beelixer, all right? Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. You get 15% off everything they carry. Again, I'm a huge fan of the superfood honey. Love the bee pollen. Beelixer, game changer, all right? That's Beekeepers Naturals. So that's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for 15% off. And now back to the show. All right, we're back and we're talking with Dr. Lisa Moscone about her new book, the female brain, the XX brain. And now we know that the X chromosome <laughs> is bigger, has more genes. So yeah, I'm not saying women are more important. I'm not saying that, but if our chromosomes have anything to say about it, 
but this book is really special and um it's a it's like a manual for every woman this is information that you should know you need to know and i think I, so. I think that you know in the next decade hopefully like some of the things that we are ignoring are going to become common knowledge and yes. it starts with people like yourself absolutely so very yeah. grateful for that now thank you when we think about the transition uh through menopause what tends to come up in the just public consciousness is hormone therapy. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about that before we talk about some of the like real brick and mortar yes. solutions. Mm -hmm. So wh what do you think? First of all, bioidentical hormones. Aye. What do you, what you, do you think You live in about California. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big deal in California. Um, well, hormones are, are complicated and there's a lot of confusion on whether or not one formulation is safer than the other and one dosage is better than a compounded dose. And um, I think we need bit much better data and more research to really answer all these very important questions. Yeah. What we know for sure about hormones is what we should not be doing. I think that's the major lesson that we got, that we learned from clinical trials. And especially what happened historically is that um, in 1950s, the first hormonal formulation became available and it was met with such incredible joy and expectations that every woman in menopause was put on hormones, very high doses of hormones, and basically left on hormones for life. And that was before the NIH, the National Institute on Health, even had a chance to run clinical trials mm. to really look at safety and side effects and efficacy. So in 1993, the NIH launched the Women's Health Initiative, which was an enormous clinical trials with tens of thousands of women who were randomized to take either hormones or placebo for years. And the idea was that taking the hormones that the body was no longer making would really help reduce all these things that we talked about, the symptoms of menopause, not just the hot flashes, which were a big concern, of course, but especially the trials looked at risk of heart disease and stroke and blood clots and also dementia. And what happened is that they were very abruptly stopped in 2002, 2003, because very early data showed that the therapy was doing exactly the opposite of what was supposed to be doing. So there was a much higher incidence of heart attacks and strokes and cardiac events for women taking the estrogens and a progestin, which is a synthetic form of progesterone. Uh, there was also higher risk of cancer. And for those women, there was also twice the chance of developing dementia. Oh my God. So it was, it was an absolute disaster. The trials would stop. Uh, the news really picked on, on that and really broadcasted this data in a very frightening way and so just so many women just stopped therapy basically called turkey and there were so many lawsuits and and basically research development kind of stopped at that point and i think it's been really hard to get back up to speed since then just recently we we have some new clinical trials that are much better versions of that trial in that the Women's Health Initiative had some issues to start with, especially that the women in the trial, both trials, were too old to start with. They were pretty much over 65. You know, if you go through menopause at 50-ish, and you, your system shuts down 
the receptors are just going to shut down because there's no, there's no estrogen activating them. And so the whole, you know, your brain, your body just resets and moves forward. But if you then reintroduce the hormones when the system is not ready to receive them, you're not going to get a benefit. Mm. You may get a bunch of side effects, which mm -hmm. is what happened, especially for the vascular system, which seemed to be the, the major issue. And then just recently, then going to, to make it really short. <laughs> but now we have some clinical trials in younger women. And it turns out that if you, especially for your brain, if you take hormones within six years of menopause, that is not harmful. It doesn't seem to be particularly beneficial yet, but there's hope. And then, you know, of course, we need to test different formulations and different dosages and different timelines. And what many of us really believe is that you need to probe the system. You need to mm. see are your receptors active? Is your system ready to take these hormones? When is this the best time to start? When is the best time to stop? And how much of these hormones do you need as a woman? Because there's no average dose. You know, every woman makes a different quantity of, of hormones and different qualities. So you really, therapy really needs to be individualized. Yeah. And I want to, because I get this question all the time, sure. should I take these hormones? Should I be on hormone? And so what I did, is of course describe this in detail, but then I came up with flowcharts, mm. being a scientist. Yeah. So this is obviously not to replace your doctor. Which is in the book, the flowcharts. Yeah, the flowcharts are in the book, and I think you can just start and say, okay, do you have hot flashes? Yes, no. Do you have low sex drive? Yes, no. Um, do you have blah, 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 blah? Yes, no. And then it gives you options. Are you eligible for hormonal therapy? Mm -hmm. Many women are not. Yeah. Some women are. Yeah. And if you are eligible, then you go to the next um, thing, the next figure, and decide whether or not there are risks associated with that based on your age, on your cardiovascular risk score, on your cancer risk score. So there is no universal answer, right? It's yeah. not like you're a woman, so. Yeah. You do this. Here there are go. a number of parameters that we need to take into account, and I explain them in the book. Yeah. So, so it's a good important. start. Yeah, it's just it's creating a broader, like, I think our tendency is towards just, you know, again, one lane or one track yes. thinking just because of the way that our system is structured. Right. And uh, like they were giving out estrogen like hotcakes in the 1950s. Yes. And now, you know, the conversation has shifted. And with that said, with it opening up, uh, a lot of people are aware of the genetic component mm -hmm. to conditions like Alzheimer's. Um, and so there's a lot of various genetic testing available. Yes. And this is a topic you address in the book because yes, it taking, it, taking it upon ourselves to do, you know, the direct to consumer yes. tests, which this bothered me for a long time. This is it why does. people are wondering, like, why don't I talk about it very frequently on the show is because I, I saw some bad decisions. People are just at cocktail parties. You know, yeah. they're talking. It was like, oh, yeah, you get your genes tested and, you know, whatever. And you can, you know, get your ovaries removed or whatever based off of these tests that come in the mail. Right. Now, with that said, um, here, I got to share this. This is a quote from the book. Okay. You state that the problem with many direct to consumer genetic tests, which, again, there's some benefits. But sure. you said that the tests might only be slightly more accurate than horoscopes. Yes. All right. Now, let me. With that said, let in me some, tell you my let me tell cases. you my horoscope today. <laughs> so I went and looked it up, okay? 
And um, this is my true horoscope today, which I don't know anything about horoscopes, but this is what my <laughs> horoscope said. <laughs> Enjoy lighthearted socializing among friends and colleagues, striking a good balance between one-on-one -on -one contact and group activities. How's that even a horoscope? This is like a fortune That's cookie. That's so general. But guess what we're doing right now? One-on-one. -on -one. Okay, come on. <laughs> For two introverts, Somebody's like Somebody <laughs> that's about that horoscope life, they're like, see, I told you. Yeah. But... Yeah, so that's the thing. There's a and lot that's of guesswork the Yeah, Yeah, well, I think as a, as a scientist and as a person who is responsible for a lot of patients, I want to know what the test-free test reliability is for any test. So if you're being tested today and tomorrow and in a month, I need to have the same result. And we have clear certified labs with known test free test reliability, which is never perfect, by the way. There's always a margin of error, right? But usually is quite low and is known for the tests. But most TDC's tests do not even share that information. Like I looked at a few because our patients would come to us and say, I have this APOE genotype and terrified is the bad Alzheimer's gene. And was like, how did you even get it done? They're like, oh, I did like 23andMe, for example. And very often we repeat the test. Actually, we always repeat the test if they are our patients and very often they don't match. But we use a CLIA certified lab, so I'm much more confident that the results we get are the right ones. Yeah. There was this study published in Nature showing how even the BARCA gene gets really mis misdiagnosed with these tests. That's and the then breast women, cancer. Yeah, that's the breast cancer yeah. gene, the BARCA1 or 2. And if you don't go to a specialist that have it confirmed, and it turns out you don't have the genetic mutation, I mean, women can really make a decision to to have their breasts removed or their, you know, uterus removed and then find out, oh, actually, perhaps. Yeah. Although any reasonable doctor would repeat the test. Yeah. It was incredible how inaccurate. Yeah. And even the apogene, A-P-O-E gene, by yeah. the way, um, which is largely, but not appropriately linked to Alzheimer's because I think you shared there's maybe like 60% of Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's patients, patients do don't have even it. have it. Yeah. Don't even have absolutely. that gene. Absolutely. And it creates so much fear. And this is what I wanted to highlight is that yeah. you, you mentioned that basically receiving genetic information without counseling yes. is dangerous. It is very dangerous. Re receiving any medical information or clinical information without guidance, I think, is, is potentially a problem. Because what do you do with the information? With, with some tests, like if your cholesterol is high at this point, most likely than not, you know what you're supposed to be doing, right? You watch your diet, your exercise, and other parameters. You ask your f parents, did they have high, high cholesterol, is it genetic or not? But then there are all these new tests for which uh, the test is only as good as the doctor who's going to manage yeah. your response to the knowledge of the test and who's also going to know what to do about it, right? There are some people, I'm super intolerant to bell peppers. And it is a genetic thing. It's a genetic variant that just makes me intolerant. So I avoid bell peppers. That's very straightforward, right? I can't touch them. But APOE is complicated. We know that the gene comes with three different variants, E2, E3, E4, or Epsilon2, Epsilon3, Epsilon4. And the E4 variant has been associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's, whereas the E2 variant seems to be protective against it. And the E3 variant is kind of neutral. 
Does it mean that if you have this E4 genotype, you're going to get Alzheimer's? No, it does not. And this is something that a genetic counselor should be able to explain and to really provide accurate statistics. Yes, your risk is a little bit higher. And why does that matter? Because there are things that this APOE gene does that potentially put a risk for Alzheimer's that at least in part, we have some control over. Right, and so that's when it's really important, not just the counseling to avoid panic, yeah. but also that a doctor talks to you about managing your genetic risk. Yes, and that's what you really focus on in the latter part of the book. Yes. What are the things we can do to manage this risk yes. to make all these processes much more gra graceful and just to help you to feel better, perform mm -hmm. better. Yes. And so I want to talk about that. You mentioned one okay. earlier, which is uh, a risk factor, which is smoking yes. and the impact that can have on ovaries. Health, yeah. But some of the things that we can do that you talk about in the book, steps to a well-nourished brain specifically. Mm. And I want to talk about some of these. Uh, one of them is to protect your brain with antioxidants. Yes. So why does that matter? That's a good one. Well, I think it really matters because, for a number of reasons. Number one, that the brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. And by virtue of being so energetically active, is also really sensitive and really vulnerable to oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is something that happens in your body and your brain as you age. It's just a natural part of getting older. And it is, in fact, a product of glucose metabolism, creating um, you know, oxygen peroxide or these this, um, oxidants. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that you can kind of balance it out by importing antioxidants into your body and your brain by means of a healthy diet, which is really one of the few ways that we can reduce oxidative stress is through the diet. And then the other reason that oxidative stress is such an issue, especially for women around midlife or menopause, is that we show those energy reductions in the brain that are potentially related to oxidative stress or to the brain becoming even more vulnerable to things like oxidative stress and inflammation. So antioxidants are really important. And the good thing is that they come from foods that actually yeah. taste good. We yeah. were talking about non-juice and it's not <laughs> yeah. exactly palatable, but many veggies and fruits and nuts and seeds contain antioxidants. Even caviar contains a little bit, which is a little bit. Uh, it's mostly really vegetables and fruits, which one should be eating anyway. But the important thing to know is that for women, specifically, we have evidence that three vitamins in particular are really helpful against oxidative stress. And these are vitamin A or beta-carotene, which is the precursor, and then vitamin C and vitamin E. And the interesting thing is that vitamin C and E are also really helpful to alleviate the symptoms of menopause. So see how everything seems to yeah. be really going hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned in the book, there was a large scale studies found that elderly people consuming a good amount of vitamin E had yes. nearly 70% lower risk of developing dementia. Yes, especially when taken together with vitamin C. So if you have both, and the thing is, they had it in their diets. Mm -hmm. So we need more research on that, but it looks like obtaining these nutrients, the antioxidants from the diet is actually better 
than getting the same nutrients from supplements because they're more biologically active and they contain more varieties of the same vitamin. So vitamin E comes in eight different isoforms and each one of these isoforms has a slightly different effect on the brain. Like the alpha variety is more for oxygenation, the gamma variety increases blood flow a little bit more. So when you eat almonds or olive oil or other fruit, other nutrients, other foods that contain vitamin E, you get all these different forms. Whereas usually when you buy the supplements, it's just one, it's one right. of the variety. But also there's a lot more in food. Yeah, the you know, cofactors. Just the just... cofactors, the interactions between yeah. different nutrients and the experience. I hope everybody heard that there are different forms of vitamin E. It's not just one yes. thing. Same thing. We know about vitamin D, right. but it's the same thing with vitamin C. It's the same thing with vitamin E. The B vitamins. B vitamins we know about different. that category. You yes. know, it's, and so when you're taking a supplement and it says, you know, I'm getting my, you know, 300% my daily value of vitamin E, is that the kind you really need? You know, which is again, if you lean towards food. And so you mentioned olive oil, yes. um, almonds, so nuts Almond. and seeds, avocados is another avocados good source. Avocados great. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. that's so good. So that's the first Food one. Food is medicine. Yes. It's really important. Hippocrates said it. <laughs> uh, yes. Another one here is to manage your carbs. So this manage. is an interesting dichotomy because you're saying we need glucose yes. for the brain to be able to do its, yes. do its thing, but we got to be cautious. Careful. Yeah. Yes. I think, so there's, there's interesting research that was really done in women that never really gets shared outside of academia. And I didn't even know that much about it until I really started looking into that. There are these beautiful studies, mostly done at Harvard, uh, like the nurses' health studies, a huge one, really fabulous. And they looked specifically at women and clearly showed that um, carbohydrates are good for women. And I think it's good to talk about it right now because you know, with all these high-fat diets being so popular and so trendy, there's a tendency for many, obviously men, but also women, to really stay away from carbohydrates and almost be fearful of carbohydrates. So I think it's important to know that they're not necessarily bad for you as long as you eat them, obviously, in reasonable amounts and also it's important to talk about the quality of the carbs that are there are carbohydrates that really negatively impact your body mostly by negatively impacting your hormones and then there are like the refined carbohydrates like white sugar white bread and refined pasta pizza all the good things <laughs> and then there are the you know, so-called good carbs that don't impact your insulin levels nearly as much, but they do provide enough glucose and fiber, like complex carbohydrates. And that has been shown in a ton of studies to be really correlated with improved um, health in women. So a lower risk of cognitive decline, a much lower risk of heart disease and stroke, lower risk of depression. And just for context, I'm not saying that one shouldn't be eating the fats, right? It's more like um, because women's bodies and brains are so dependent on estrogens, at least prior to menopause, it's helpful to know that estrogen is um, a carbohydrate burning hormones. So it really helps you burn the carbohydrates as a woman. So even if you're on a high carb diet, as a woman, you're still going to burn all those carbs. Whereas men, 
because they have more testosterone and less estrogens, tend to put that away as glycogen in their tissues. So the metabolism of carbohydrates differs between the genders, not completely, but a little bit. So I think it's good to know that. Just go for fiber, fiber-rich foods that also provide glucose for your brain. And I would also like to mention that of all the diets out there, the Mediterranean diet has been shown to really support health in women, overall health. Like women on this diet have a much lower risk of cognitive decline as compared to those on more like Western diets. They have a much lower risk of heart disease, of stroke, or depression, and of cancer. And they also have like 30% fewer hot flashes. So I think it's something good to know because the Mediterranean diet is a flexible diet. It's mostly vegetables and fruits and whole grains if you eat them, legumes if you'd rather have legumes or don't have them. You know, but have your veggies and your fruit and then fish is a big part of the diet. Healthy fats, like we don't have avocados, but let's throw it in there with extra virgin olive oil is a really good source. And meat and dairy products are consumed in moderation, which is not you shouldn't eat them, right? Just not breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or that should be more like a treat, yeah. I think. And of course, no processed food. And this is a good segue because you mentioned uh, one of these is to choose the right fats. And yeah. in our last conversation, which we'll put in the show notes, one of my favorite episodes, <laughs> we were in New York for that one. Yes. And um, you talked about the difference between our dietary fats and the yes. fats that actually make it into the brain and the fats yeah. that the brain mm -hmm. is made of. Mm -hmm. So, but we won't get into that. Listen to that episode. I promise right. you'll love it. But it's one of these clear things here for uh, brain health, for having a well-nourished brain is choose the right fats. And right. in the nurse's health study, you no noted that when we're looking at women taking uh, full fat milk versus yes. low fat milk, there yes. was a big distinction there. Yes, in that the full fat milk was actually better. Yeah. for fertility. That's a study that specifically was really based for specifically fertility. for fertility. However, fertility is related to ovarian health and hormonal health. And the longer you're fertile, the later you go through menopause. So in some ways, it must be good for your brain mm, of course. as well, right? And the point being that um, cows that make milk are pregnant cows. And so they have all the hormones beyond lactin, but they also have a lot of estrogens in the milk. But when you remove the fat from the milk, you're also getting rid of the hormones that are bound to fatty particles, right? Hormones bind to fat. And what you're left with is more like a bizarre hormonal cocktail that is more androgenic than estrogenic. So there's this theory that by drinking low fat or no fat milk, you're effectively getting a lot of androgens inside your own body. I don't think that quantity really you know, is, is that much. But it does seem to play some some kind of role. Yeah, and it's a simple principle to follow as well. Like, and you just outline it very clearly. Just go for the full fat version. Yeah, this is not? how nature would produce it. Right, it tastes better. <laughs> but we know we suffer through. Like, you know, yes. growing up, uh, we had one of these like um, like a WIC program here in the U.S. where it's basically like um, government. Food ah, stores, you know, like okay. we would go to food pantries and we get these uh, kind of government handouts. Mm. And one of the programs, we got skim milk ah. instead of, you know, the vitamin D full fat milk, which is great. 
But I remember pouring that skim milk over my cereal and just like literally feeling like, yes, like (laughs) I should just, why don't I just use water? Like this is just white water and it would piss me off as a kid. And so I just would just eat the cereal dry rather than oh. suffer through the white water. <laughs> so, but now we know But again. I agree. Yeah. I mean, what's the point? It doesn't taste good yeah. for it's sure. It's probably like, let's give it to the poor kids. Um, <laughs> so there's, again, there's so many different important uh, facets of having a well-nourished brain that you outline. I just want to talk about maybe one or two more. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really fascinating when you mentioned feed your microbes. Yes. And how does that relate? When we're thinking about brain health, how does that correlate with the microbes? Yeah, that's a really good question. And as usual, I go to how is that specifically important for women? But the, the point is that the microbes in your guts do have the health of your microbes has an effect on the health of your brain. So we know that if you have more of the bad microbes and fewer of the good ones, there's a tendency to suffer more from anxiety, for example, and depression. And sometimes anyone who's ever had food poisoning knows that you can't think straight, right? So they do cloud your mind. If you have a problem in your gut, it can have an effect on your brain. And something that is interesting to me as as a women's brain advocate, a specialist, if you will, is that uh, fiber is excellent for really supporting gut health and also stabilizing hormonal levels. So by feeding your guts the right way with with fiber, with oligosaccharides, which are the specific carbs that they're non-digestible for us, but they feed the microbes in the in the gut and taking you know prebiotics and probiotics, um, hopefully from foods, but also from supplements. You're not only supporting digestive health, but also you're supporting your hormones. And I think this is something really interesting and and important to just to keep in mind. You yeah. know, you're doing something good for for your for your tummy, for your hormones, and as a result, for your brain as well. Yeah makes so much sense. Yes. Uh, we've been sprinkling in this conversation um, for years just mm. about how powerful these microbes are in influencing our health. And just even understanding we have all of our human genes, but then all of these microbes, these trillions, yeah. they have their own genes. They have their own you genes. Know, and we're still just scratching the surface on our understanding. Yeah. Uh, so definitely much more to come there. And I was just like, of course, like it has to be highlighted in your book yeah. as well. But <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me about um, microbes and how they're related to the brain is, is how surprising that was, right? When that correlation came out, everybody was kind of skeptical or not quite sure, and now everybody's really into that. And I think that's a major flaw with Western medicine, how we tend to think of our bodies as a bunch of separate organs that don't speak to each other. And that's the same for women's health, because it's really, it's not about your brain or your ovaries or something else. They're, they're a system. They speak to each other. And in my opinion, if you have a problem with your foot, your brain knows about okay. it, right? Because yeah, the say f- <laughs> <laughs> for sure, your brain must be like, ah. And, and any big uh, change in any organ of the body must have an effect on the brain. Yeah. And I think we, we should really move towards a more integrative approach to health. Absolutely. That considers all of us. You know? This is a perfect segue to the last thing I want to ask <laughs> okay, you about, good. which is addressing the stress component yes. of brain health. Let's do that. And this is yeah, definitely yeah. not talked about enough when we're talking about 
the female brain yes. and how stress plays a big part yes. in this. Well, stress plays a really big role for men and women, of course, and it's the silent killer in our society. It really puts people at risk for heart attacks and strokes and inflammation, and it, it impacts your brain as well. And for women in particular, there are some very interesting brain imaging studies showing how if your cortisol levels are really high, the levels of your main stress hormone, your brain suffers, even already in midlife. And that really high cortisol levels correlate with brain shrinkage and memory impairment already when you're 50 years old. But the brain shrinkage was only found in women and not in men. So in men, if you have high cortisol levels, your memory might suffer and your performance might suffer, but your brain is still kind of compensating for it. Whereas women's brains, especially postmenopause, show signs of shrinkage as a response to high stress levels or chronic stress levels. And this is telling, I think, because we know that stress can literally steal your hormones. Mm -hmm. So cortisol, Again, the main stress hormone works in balance with your, with your estrogens. So if your cortisol goes up, your estrogens go down. If cortisol goes down, your estrogens go back up. And this is because they have a common precursor, which is called pregnenolone. So the body needs pregnenolone to make both cortisol and estrogens and testosterone. And if you need to make more cortisol, the body's gonna steal the pregnenolone away from your sex hormones and just shuffle it towards mm. the cortisol levels. Yeah. And so your hormones just plummet. And unfortunately, there's a ton of evidence that women suffer stress or experience stress in a more severe way than men do. And again, it's not about comparing. The point is that women are stressed out. And it looks like the peak is somewhere between the age of 25 and 45. And for most women, really um, maps onto the perimenopause, which is honestly when most women have small kids and they have full-time jobs yeah. and they're trying to hold on to their husbands as well. And they may have elderly parents who need help. So there's a whole lot going on and then stress levels go, really go up and you don't have time for yourself. And that also really has consequences, not just on your health, but also on your brain health. So for all husbands out there, partners or friends, help them out, help those <laughs> yes. women out. It's <laughs> good dinner. advice. You know, uh, we mentioned this earlier and, uh, you know, with your daughter breaking the boards and oh you taking God, that yes. break, you know, just having yes. a teamwork because this is something we evolved having, you know, we evolved yes. having a tribe, community, uh, but now we're isolated. We have our little family nook somewhere and Oftentimes we're not by our parents anymore right. or other, you know, caregiver support systems. And sometimes we don't even have two parents, you right. know. And so I think it's important for all of us to open our minds because no matter what situation you are in, first of all, if you do have access and support, yes, it's use a blessing. It. Absolutely. Use it. Be more proactive in it. And even understanding just how much stress and just being tied up in all this stuff is is hurting your brain. Yes. But if you are in a position where you don't feel like you have that, make it an intention. You yeah. know, open yourself up to you know because for some people it's just like, well, you know, I, I, I don't like my my mother-in-law or whatever it is. Another stereotype. Okay, I love my mother-in-law. <laughs> all right, but that might be a situation where you just open yourself up to better communication mm -hmm. uh, and understanding that that is another 
vital influence for your child to have that wisdom input and for also for you to have some time to yourself while your child is in you yes. know the hands of somebody who you trust right. so open yourself up friends and family expanding your yes. communication your community yeah. is super important humans we our genes expect that of us mm -hmm. you know yes so. true and also for introverts who perhaps don't want to go that way there <laughs> yeah. are other things there are other stress reduction yeah. techniques like green time over screen time seems to be a big one uh, meditation helps a lot of people and especially for women there were some interesting clinical trials showing how a regular meditation practice even just 12 minutes a day really lowered cortisol levels and improved oxygenation to the brain improved blood flow to the brain and also reduced the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause Mm, so super important. Oh it is gosh. important. If anyone is into meditation, I think it's a great asset. It's a great tool yeah. to cultivate. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm so grateful we got to do this in yeah. New York, and now here we are in LA. In LA. And uh, <laughs> next, I guess we're going to do it in Italy next. Ooh. That's going to be the yeah, next one. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, this book is is very important, as we've mentioned. It's groundbreaking science that's that's contained in this book it's and a lot of work it's been a lot of work yeah i, I mean the science behind the book yeah and that's just you years putting of research this together and even having the audacity because i know this could be Ooh, even yes. like you know the market is it's very this is direct this yes. is for women's it is health unapologetically yeah. for women and about women and i think it's about time Absolutely. that there was a actual brain book just just for women so what was the driving force what was the catalyst where you just was like i have to write this book right now i think we got to a point with the research where i felt that the data was really strong enough to share i'm a scientist so i'm very cautious about talking about anything that i don't feel has the strength or validity to really make a big impact and I, I just really wanted to write this book for so long because these are all the things that I've been looking into for myself yeah. to be honest I really I saw my grandmother just pile into dementia and I, and I was like I just really hope this never happens to me and if there's anything that I can do not just to prevent dementia but also to just feel good and just really be the best version of myself that I can possibly be for my parents for my daughter now that I have a a little girl and I'm really doing this for my generation and her generation as well to come and any woman of any age really I think these these tips and recommendations really are divided by age yeah. right because there are some recommendations that would work better for younger women who have some specific needs and perhaps pregnancy. It's a huge one that I talk about a lot in the book. It was quite shocking to me, honestly, to have a baby. Beautiful, but really such a major change in your life and it impacts your brain as well. And then I have other recommendations for women who are past menopause. And there are so many things that all of us can do today to support their brains and I think it's really important that we get to hear about them. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> awesome. And who better to hear from um, than Dr. Lisa Moscone? Can you let everybody know where they can pick up the book, which is available yes. right now? The book is available right now on March 10th and it's found on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and all major bookstores. So Sweet. Go, and where can people connect one. with you online? With me online. So I'm on Instagram. 
I'm too sensitive for Twitter. I just say, <laughs> I can't do it. I try. I just, it's just, I can't do that. So on Instagram, my handle is Dr. Dr. underscore Moscone, M-O-S-C-O-N-I. And my website is lisamasconi.com. It's probably the best way to get in touch. Perfect. We'll put all that in the show notes. Thank, thank you. you for coming to hang out with me. Thank you for having me. Awesome. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Again, I'm not saying this lightly. This is an important book, and it's really shifting the conversation because men and women, we're different, all right? We are different. We know this from, you know, from culture, you know, um, but a lot of these things we see as different between men and women are cultural constructs, right? And she highlights that in the book as well. You get the blue, you get the pink, you, you know, you wear this thing, I wear that thing. These are cultural constructs. We're talking about what's happening with our biology. It is very different and we need to start to address it as such so that we can have comprehensive data for every man and woman out there and just make this a part of of our, our, our culture, a real culture of health and wellness. And so again, I'm really excited about this book. It's available right now. So you can pick up your copy anywhere books are sold. And make sure if you enjoyed this, tag your friend and let them know what you thought about this episode. Tell them to check it out. You could share this on Instagram, Twitter, tag Lisa as well, and tag me and let me know what you thought about the episode. And if you're ch checking out YouTube and you're hanging out in the studio with us, Leave a comment, please. Let us know what you thought about this episode. And uh, listen, we've got some powerhouse epic shows coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.